0: We are a group of friends, bound by our appreciation for liberty and good podcasting. Free-minded thinkers from all walks of life, our values come together with one accord to discuss the common culture and news of the day, along with whatever random crap is going on in our lives. Welcome to the Union of the Unknowns.
1: Welcome to another podcast of Union of the Unknowns. We have an amazing lineup today. Um, and hopefully we'll get Stella from Australia. will hop on. But uh, she she may make a surprise appearance. But anyways, we have, um, starting from my top, we have our amazing Terry from Canary Islands. Hello. <laughs> we have our favorite Renaissance man, Kiel Thor. Howdy. And the one I like to call a normie, but he says he's not. And then our special guest, um, Sally Mayweather. Sal Mayweather. What's up, guys? (laughs) So, Sal, thanks so much for coming on. We know that you just launched your new book, Three Books That Changed the World. And one of your uh, tweets, you had said... That your new book tells the true history of the Progressive Era as seen through three key works of fiction, and uh, you argue without these three books, the Progressive Era may not have happened at all. So I cannot guess what they are. Has are you willing to share what the answer is, or are you of waiting course. to share that on Twitter? <laughs> no,
2: no, of course, of course. Do you guys want to? Do you guys want to guess? That, you, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll give you some clues. They were uh. really, they were all written between the years of 1906 and 1917. So within that 11-year span, they were all works of fiction, uh, and at least and, and at least two of them um, were uh, mistaken for being nonfiction.
0: I was going to say <clears> – <throat> the time frame throws my guess off. Wow. I was going to say you know the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but. I guess that's not it. No. No.
3: <laughs> Books that affected the progressive uh, thought process in your opinion, is that right?
2: Yes, yes, very much so. I think I think if I, if I tell you the first uh, one it'll be sort of obvious. You're going to be like, "Oh, I should have got that." Brave New World? I don't know. No, no, no. So the the first one, I'm going to tell you. The first one is The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Um,
3: oh yeah yeah
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And that so that was written in 1906. Um the second one was uh 1912 and that was um a book called Philip Drew Administrator by Colonel Edward uh, mandel House who was President Wilson's oh, chief advisor. Okay. Yeah. And uh he wrote this this fiction book that Woodrow Wilson sort of uh it sort of planned out wilson's two-term presidency and, and of the it sort of laid the groundwork for the progressive era as like a, a larger you in a, in a larger sense and then the third book is sort of obscure um but it was it was uh it was a 1917 novel by an australian woman who had moved to england named uh El- elizabeth von arnim who was writing under the pen name alice Cholmondeley. And she had uh, she wrote this this very like moving book about um, it, it's, it's a, an, an epistolary novel. In other words, it's a, a written in the form of letters that her daughter mm-hmm. uh, is sending to back to her. And uh, long story short, this is set during the, the early sort of opening salvos of World War One her daughter travels to Germany to study music under um, a musical genius in Germany named Kloster and war breaks out. She gets stuck there and she ends up dying tragically. And uh, the book was a World War One propaganda book from the Allies. And uh, that sort of helped solidify uh, American support for the British during World War One, which really sort of turned the tables and created the whole uh Treaty of Versailles and and obviously that led to um you know everything that we experienced the Cold War the Middle East crisis and so on so those are the three books that's the premise of the book and it just came out um I released it yesterday but really I sort of released it this morning I, I sort of re-released it uh and uh, yeah and I also uh, I also released uh, an audiobook version of my previous book um, the American Experiment which is a a, a a US history book it's sort of based on revisionist history so everybody was sort of bugging me for the audiobook version so I I figured I might as well put both out at once
1: yeah nice. so, so uh... yeah.
3: Um, I didn't know. Uh, I, I recognise not the second two, but I know the name Mandel House. He was kind of like, uh, um, you know, the Cheney, supposedly the power behind the throne, who was directing Wilson.
2: Exactly. Uh, did he have something to do with exactly? The Fed well, with what? Did he have something? To do, did he have something to do with the with the Fed? Um, you know what sort of. Uh... In an offhanded way, yes. And that's one of the things that I talk about in both of these books, actually, is like the whole, the election of 1912. People don't really understand. Um, you know, we haven't been taught this stuff in in, in U.S. history classes or in, in global history classes, but the, the American presidential election of 1912 was a coup d'etat performed by the bankers. Uh, you had um, uh, Taft, who was running... A, as, as the Republican candidate and Wilson as a Democrat candidate, and there was uh, this maverick outsider, Teddy Roosevelt, who uh, the bankers had formed a cabal for the purpose of creating a, a Federal Reserve, and they got it into their heads that they can sort of coax Teddy Roosevelt into running again which would split the ticket and get taft out of office because taft was not going to yeah. sign off on a central bank he was sort of a constructionist constitutionalist fellow and they knew that they had to get him out of office if they wanted their bank so they knew that wilson or roosevelt would would be good to go on on either one of the uh, you know either one of those guys would have signed off on their bank so they convinced roosevelt to run split the republican vote and it worked at, it, it worked as they planned wilson got uh he, he was the, uh, the nominee and he ended up becoming the president. Wow. You know, I was speaking
1: to someone who works in the federal government the other day, and he has a friend that is owns like an extremely large, um, fireworks company, and he was saying that he is, has done, Um, parties or fundraisers for both Democrats and Republicans for president. He said he didn't care whichever one. It didn't matter. He's, He's apolitical. He said as long as they're pro fireworks and him growing his business even larger, which I think that probably goes across the board with everyone.
2: Yeah, I think everybody sort of is going to support people who are, you know, you know, if your if your livelihood is sort of uh, threatened by one candidate, even if you like them across the board and other stuff, you're not you know you're not going to go with them, and, and vice versa, of course, too. You know, at the end of the day, it's you know I I don't I, I don't think that it really gets us anywhere. Um, even even the the best politicians sort of fall short in my view, but that's sort of just the nature of the beast. That not to not to. That was sort of the 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 subject of my first book. It was anti-politics, which is sort of this anarchist agorist philosophy, where I sort of lay all that out. But yeah.
1: So how many books have you written so far?
2: Um, So this is my third. Um, I I did have one like little like book of memes that uh, I I put together. It was like two hundred memes or something. Uh, that I gave away on Amazon or something. And it, that was called Orange Man Bad. But that aside, uh, I have like three textbooks um, Anti Politics, uh, which is Agorist Philosophy. I have The American Experiment, which is Revisionist History. And now I have three books that changed the world, which is Revisionist History.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Can I, uh, can I,
2: can I
3: ask uh, what made you choose those three books? I was just looking. Came back. I, I, I remember I'd heard of the book, and I'm just looking it up on Amazon here, yeah. and it's the one about the meatpacking industry, right? And you're yes, right. Every, yes. Most people think it's. It, I kind of thought it was based on fact, uh, right? And, uh, as you say, a lot of people probably think it is totally fact. So, um, what was uh, what? What, in your opinion, was you know? How did that influence things?
2: Well, we were all taught that in school. That was this sort of narrative that we were given as school children was that, you know, the the food industry was sort of, you know, the wild west and everything was dirty and unsanitary and along comes the the benevolent pol- politicians who save the day and they sweep in and they force these evil capitalists to rain they rein in these evil capitalists and make the food safe for all of us to consume. That of course is a, is a fiction created by politicians and for politicians. And uh, that not only did it sort of, not only did that have the effect of um, cartelizing the meatpacking industry and also the food and drug industry, because that was sort of a, a rider that was attached to the bill was a sort of separate sort of thing for, the, for food and drugs. So basically in 1906, after the jungle was, was uh, published they got them the, the meatpacking cartel was cartelized, the food industry was cartelized, and the uh, drug industry was cartelized. And that sort of kicked off the whole regulatory nanny state. That was sort of the 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 wow. opening salvos of the Progressive Era. So that was, uh, and that was the early Progressive period, right? That was, you know, 1906. And up in Sinclair, it was sort of uh, one of the early, early figures in the Progressive Era. So that was easy. And then with House, um, you know, it, it was his influence on Wilson is like ubiquitous. I mean, Wilson essentially sort of gave the keys to House and just said, you know, you're, you're, you can be the president. He was a very lonely and depressed man, especially after his first wife died while he was in office. And he, uh, he was also like an unhealthy man. He had a lot of health issues. And because of that, he relied very heavily on House, and I think to his detriment. That's sort of what I argue in the book. House was wildly unqualified for these positions. He, he was, you know, he was a, a, a political boss. He was a political strategist, right? And and he was he was not a diplomat. But yet Wilson made him the chief diplomat during World War One negotiations, um, which you know was a wreck. Neither Wilson nor House could stop. Uh, uh, the British or the French from imposing such harsh terms on on Germany um not only that but um well I I can go into that there's there's a lot there too um but and then Christine was just that was another sort of I wasn't honestly I didn't really know about that book until I was listening to an episode of the Dangerous History podcast which I don't know if you all are familiar with but wonderful podcast Mm -hmm. uh brilliant brilliant material He's, it's, it's hosted by a former college history professor who sort of went full time with the podcasting and stuff. So it's, he's very knowledgeable. And he had this very long form episode about World War I propaganda. And as he was met, discussing this book, Christine, I thought to myself, wow, isn't that coincidental? Three books, they were basically written within 10 years of one another. They were all fiction books, um, all taken to some degree to be nonfiction. Uh, in one sense or another and th- without them like like they really sort of propelled all of this like the the progressive era was one of the most rapid expansions of state power in human history and these three books were sort of the gasoline on that to the fire and uh, it was really just it kind of like it was i don't know it was very coincidental i just couldn't stop thinking. couldn't get off my head and i uh I I thought I you know I just I have to get this project out of the way before I can move on to something else you know it was just sort of sitting there on your mind you know
1: yeah you had to do it yeah do you think that was a way that they were able to influence and manipulate society back then like as the same way that they do it now through like music television um, no doubt movies and stuff like that
2: it was it was um, this is sort of the start of what we have today. And the British were really pri- pioneers in all of this. Um, you know, in World War One, they had Wellington House, which was sort of the secret um, propaganda bureau. And Wellington House was mm-hmm. very, very good at what they did. They were very effective, and they sort of, the work that they put in at, at Wellington House sort of laid the groundwork for all modern political propaganda. Um, you know uh and that's sort of i i sort of take a deep dive into the book into political propaganda i sort of use christine as sort of a jumping board for that but uh no doubt about it you see like back there was like a, a 1916 silent film called battle of the Somme," where uh it, it for the first time ever real life troop movements were captured on camera but it was, they were also interspersed with actors and um you know 20 million british people turned up to see this movie in 1916 that would be a lot of people to, to see a movie nowadays i mean that's that's a good turnout especially for 1916 yeah. and it was this was a, an intentionally made to be uh, war propaganda so was christine wow. Cr- christine was a product of wellington house as were a number of other books hg wells was a was known to work with wellington house a lot of his books um of course there's one very famous which is slipping my mind right now but also gk chesterton was another one um oh there's there's a whole number of of authors at the time who were working under the uh fold of wellington house and elizabeth von arnhem was one of them
3: yeah those uh two authors were fabian society guys weren't they i don't know about this christine i think uh, the and H. G. Wells were also involved in the Fabian society, which is just a sort of early you're socialist. You're probably right.
2: Yeah, you're probably right. Um, you know, especially back then, there was a lot of uh there's a lot of that going on. They didn't really sort of have like the sort of examples of Mao and Stalin and Castro to point to, so like the socialists sort of had a stronger footing. <laughs> and you know, that's that's where um uh upton sinclair really got his start he was a, a socialist and the jungle was a socialist propaganda piece he was paid 500 dollars yeah. by uh the editor of a socialist journal to write um this sort of treatise on the labor movement and uh he did and the resulting piece was the jungle but it wasn't the the stuff about the labor conditions which sort of captured the public's attention it was all this stuff about like tainted meat going into like the the food supply and choleric hogs and tubercular steer and people falling into vats of lard and never coming out and then being (laughs) shipped out to the consumers and stuff and of course this was all nonsense you know but but people read it and they were incensed by it. And, and president Roosevelt was getting letters. Uh, you know, he's just inundated with letters and Sinclair met with Roosevelt and Roosevelt didn't, you know, he, he was sort of, a, uh, you know, a tough guy, like a man's man, kind of tough guy. And he's, as far as he was concerned, like, you know, you're complaining about the taste of your food. Grow up. Like, I think he even said like, you know, I eat crap in Cuba or something like that. But, uh, he wasn't going to let an opportunity to expand executive power pass by, despite the fact that he knew Sinclair was, you know, full of it. So he capitalized on the opportunity and he, uh, ran those bills right through Congress. Wow.
1: It's interesting how, uh, when you are talking about the guy that ran like the socialist paper and how he paid this other guy $500, I'm surprised as a socialist, he participated in capitalism by paying someone $500, a lot of money back then, to write an article. I'm surprised that he didn't go out to like, you know um 10 homes and steal 50 dollars from each one of them from rich people to give to this right. guy to create you know the agenda so he really kind of was contradicting himself right there i'm sorry i just kind of just thought about that and i thought it was kind of funny
2: that stood out to me as well I, I i mean how could it not it's like you know you guys are you guys are propagandizing socialism and here you are you know doing it under the terms of capitalism under right. a private contract <laughs>
1: So, so uh, right, can you... sorry. I, can I? I'm it sorry, it sorry, sounds like good.
3: you think these, these, these writers were, you know, deliberately set up agents of chaos, rather than you know they didn't sort of create these works from their off their own bat, out of their own, their own minds. They were sort of trolled to some extent and and told what to do.
2: Well, I think uh, Sinclair definitely was a socialist, but he knew that he was propagandizing the idea. Um, so no doubt he was sort of, you know, his his intentions were not completely solid. And the same thing could be said of, of uh, von Arnim as well. She uh, there was she intentionally tried to deceive readers. I mean, in the preface to the to the book Christine, there's a, a one sentence publisher's note from Macmillan, and it says uh, the, the, the publishers have thought it best to retract some of the names involved. So, you know, this clearly a an attempt to deceive the readers and this is a fiction book. So, you know, there'd be no reason to, to retract any names or anything like that. And she also, you know, there's other sort of clues and sort of the context of the book sort of points to it being, uh, realistic. And some of the reviews that came out after the book was released, um, you know surprise surprise the new york times hailed it as one of the you know most authentic glimpses into uh german militarism and stuff like that and you know um there was a lot of that going on so yeah i, I think she, both she and and sinclair had ulterior motives house was a sort of different case he was sort of trying to uh philip drew was a uh a science fiction novel I guess you could say it was a sort of futuristic take it was sort of like uh, his his idea of what an ideal presidency would look like and of course you know it became like you know it turns into a, a dictatorship right away you know uh this guy Philip Drew goes on this crusade against the U.S. government there's this violent revolution where he wins and the U.S. government falls and he becomes this benevolent dictator and he imposes all of these different socialist changes on the american people and the world turns everything turns out wonderful and it's all roses and it's all great and uh woodrow wilson gets elected president house gives him a copy of the book back then it was sort of customary for presidents to go on like a vacation with once they were elected but before they were sworn in they would sort of go on vacation for a, a little while and House gave Wilson a copy of his book to read while he was vacationing in Bermuda. When he got back, after he read the book, he implemented every idea in the book to the to a T. And it was the opposite of, you know, in the book, everything turns out great, but in real life, it all turned out, you know, to be crap. <laughs>
1: that's crazy and he basically totally like influenced him because while he was stepping away and he had really that clear mind to kind of relax and prepare for his upcoming presidency he just like i was talking about earlier how they just want us to defecate on ourselves so he just basically defecated all over his mind right
2: in the future
1: of our country (laughs)
2: literally yeah 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 no you're right um you know, I don't know. It's it's. I, I just thought that there's a lot, um, there's a lot about the progressive era that people don't understand. It's, it's all based on lies, and it's all based on on fictions. And we are stuck with those policies still to this day. Like those policies are still in place. Like the Espionage and Sedition Act, right? Julian Assange is being is being uh, charged under under that. Uh, Donald Trump is now being charged with, with related, you know, offenses. So all of this stuff uh, we're looking at, look at where we got with inflation nowadays when in this in the federal reserve and the income taxes and all of these issues are still with us and we're, we're dealing with the consequences of all of them. So, and people don't understand it. Everybody still buys into the state narrative. So I thought it would be a good time to get this book out and, um, you know, especially the, the third chapter about war propaganda with everything that's going on today, I thought, man, wouldn't it be nice if somebody reads this and they sort of hey, they open their eyes and say, This this looks familiar. Where do I see this nowadays?
1: Where are people able to get yeah. like copies of your books and stuff like that? And if someone ever wanted to get like an autograph copy, is that something you offer? And like how would they make that happen?
2: <laughs> so this one is only uh, released in ebook and audiobook. It's uh it's downloadable from my website um honestly i was going to give it away for free to tell you the truth but i i, I decided that like even if, if like people give you a nominal amount even if it's like like you know a couple bucks or something at least they're more they'll be more inclined to read it like if you if you give somebody a dollar or three bucks for something chances are you're probably going to be more you're more likely to read it than if i just you know sent you a file to read you probably just you know it would just fall into the back of your computer. So yeah. So it's only like I think it's like three ninety nine or something like that. And uh it's a, it's it's a short book. It's it's more like a monograph, it's like a hundred pages. And the file is like a PDF. There's an ebook, an ePub version, and an audiobook version because everybody seems to want audiobooks. Um and every the other the links for all my other books are also there. It's just salvagoras.com and you'll see the little tab for books.
3: Yeah. I, um, on Amazon, you've only got, uh, the American experiment that deliberate, do you not do you want to support, you know, Amazon and anti-politics is also on Amazon.
2: I, I, I don't know why they don't, they, for some reason, they don't, they don't put both of my books underneath. I don't like I guess they have like two it's different or,
3: that they have. Yeah. It's Andy or, um, author. No, but there's like another author
2: page for Sal Mabler. I must have, when I, when I (laughs) I uploaded the books, I must have created two separate author pages or something. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you you for doing an audio.
1: Are you, are you the one reading the audio? Is it you on there?
2: Uh, Yeah, I don't read the the foreword of the new book is read by CJ Kilmer, who hosts the Dangerous History podcast.
1: Oh nice.
2: Yeah, I thought that oh, was cool. God. He wrote he oh, nice. wrote he wrote and recorded the foreword, which I thought was cool because like I said, he was the whole impetus for the book. So that's cool.
1: Okay. Okay. That's awesome. Well, if you ever need someone to write a forward, Terry can do it and then Keel record it for you. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anytime. I'm just yeah. volunteering. Kill, kill no, me. I'm just kill
2: kidding. Me. <laughs> Send me some email addresses.
1: <laughs> Unionoftheunknowns at gmail.com. There you go. <laughs> so, so what made you decide to start like writing books and stuff like that and really kind of get into this? Because I know before you used to have a podcast, but obviously you've transitioned more into that now.
2: Yeah, so I I – have I really have I've always had plans to bring the podcast back it was just it wasn't really bringing enough enough revenue to justify it I mean I was getting listeners and stuff but I wasn't really finding a lot of um you know uh, I, I was having a hard time selling ads and stuff like that so I was like it wasn't really paying off that well so I thought there must be a better way to spend your time and I uh, started to get into these books and I thought you know the first one better be like an agorist philosophy book because that's sort of uh you know that's sort of my wheelhouse and that book did really well it did really well and that encouraged me it it gave me the sort of the cash flow to be able to um spend the next year researching and writing the American experiment which did pretty well um and now I'm you know I just got this one out so we'll see how this does
1: so how did your last book do
2: Good, good. The American experimented well. And honestly, that is sort of um, it's sort of like my personal uh, treatise on like how I under how I arrived at an agorist position through like through the lens of history. Right. Mm-hmm. Sort of I started the Greeks and I, I make my way through the Romans. And the 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 general gist of the book is that you know the Greeks started uh, democracy and the the excuse at the time was uh you know they needed to sort of introduce democratic elements to greek society because the aristocrats were sort of oppressive uh so in other words democracy was brought about as a means to limit oppression limit government Mm -hmm. well that that failed for various reasons and i detail that sort of collapse that failure uh in the book in part one then the romans come around and they sort of had the same idea we're going to uh you know, they suffered under the seven kings, the seven Etruscan kings. Uh, Superbus was the really bad. This is the seventh and final tyrant of Rome, and he was overthrown. And they established this republic with the idea being that they're going to have, you know, no more kings, no more oppression. That didn't work for, you know, obvious reasons. And I sort of detail that sort of collapse, the collapse of Rome in the book and why that fell. Then along come the American founders and they say, hey, look. The Greeks tried it. The Romans tried it. But each time they each 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 one of those attempts sort of brought with it a corresponding uh, boom, right? Like Greek society did better than you know all the other contemporary societies. Roman society mm-hmm. did better than all the other contemporary societies. Mm-hmm. Every time man tried to limit government, society soared to new heights. So when it was time to sort of, when the American colonists, when it was time for them to sort of write this constitution, they had the same idea in mind, but we're going to learn from the Greeks. We're going to learn from the Romans. We're going to create a democratic Republic. We're going to take elements of one, elements of two, only the, the, you know, the best ideas from each. And we're going to combine this American experiment and that didn't work. And uh, I detail that whole collapse from, you know, Washington and Jackson to, you know, Lincoln and, and then the, the progressive era and world wars and the Cold War. And uh, at the end, the conclusion in the book is that the whole concept of, of governance is, is, is a failed model. It's it's not that the Greek or Roman or American constitutions were necessarily flawed. Of course they were flawed. They were created by men. Men are flawed. That's not the point. The point is that the task itself was flawed. The idea that you can create, uh, uh, you can have politicians, you can create a government that respects your rights and your liberties. It's just, it's it's sort of the antithesis. One is the the antithesis of the other.
1: So do you talk about what the solution is or what you think would be the best way to go? Because men regardless of any of that at the core of it all is humans is man greed power and wanting to be in control
2: yeah no doubt and i sort of i sort of leave off the end of the book uh i sort of just give you like a tease of the solution of the agorist solution and i just sort of close the book but um it's sort of done on purpose because my next book is going to be uh a sort of like an in-depth treatment of counter economics like a a really sort of deep dive that's what everybody's everybody's bugging me for that's what everybody wants so you might as well give the people what they want you know
0: of course (laughs) so i always kind of um, felt like the democracy was an invention of the state to try to trick the population into thinking they had a say in what was going on so they no doubt they could they could yeah. not be so not spend so many resources on physically controlling them all the time with lots of police and everything. But so the the kind of like in the Matrix when they you know they say the the first Matrix matrices that they had were perfect utopias, but the the brain the human brain couldn't handle it, so they had to make other ones that were full of despair and right. You know, so people to give give people the idea that they had a choice, you know. Was well, what, you know what, was um, there?
2: you're 100% right. And that's sort of the that's sort of like the, the first uh, myth that I expose in the American experiment is, is this whole idea that Greek democracy, you know, uh, was brought about by the people to, to limit the state and, and limit the aristocracy. That's what we're taught in school. That's what it seems like it would be, right, is that, you know, the people demanded that we vote. So because, you know, we're being punished by the aristocrats. That's not what happened. Um, and we're, now we're going really far back, so the historical record becomes a little bit vague and ambiguous. But from, from what we get, from what's there, we can sort of deduce um, the aristocrats. Uh, they sort of introduced these elements of democracy. You have to sort of know a little bit about Greek government, but they, they sort of appointed Solon. He was this guy named Solon who's called Solon the Lawgiver is how he's known it today. And Solon was sort of, uh, he was an aristocrat, but he was sort of broke. He was kind of poor. So he, so he, was, he had one foot in, in, the, in the aristocracy and one foot with you know, the plebs. So he was sort of accepted by both camps. So when, when the aristocrats decided they were going to start introducing elements of Greek democracy, they sort of put Solon at the forefront of it. And it was sort of just a way of shutting up the people and sort of quelling the masses and uh, there was a, there was a, a number of other reforms that Solon made um, that were that were uh, not exactly forthcoming. He did things like um, uh, at the time there was this this uh, there was a debt crisis in Athens where people were selling themselves into slavery because they couldn't pay their bills, and Solon forbade the use of voluntary slavery and he's sort of, you know, this is another triumph of democracy and another mark on his record and stuff like that. But I argue in the book that this actually was a, was a bad idea. This, you know, counterintuitively this had a sort of negative effect on Greek society because poor farmers, peasant farmers had no other form of collateral to offer up. They couldn't get loans anymore. And and a lot of people starved and, uh, you know, it's it's. But you're right. Long story short, you're absolutely right. And the same thing is true of republicanism as well. Um, I think republicanism sort of arose in Rome under false pretenses, and in the in America, the American Constitution was sort of driven by uh, false pretenses. We had this Articles of Confederation that resulted from this this you know true liberal revolution. And right away, Robert Morris, uh, who was the, na- the, you know, nation's chief financier, one of the wealthiest people in the country at the time, and Alexander Hamilton, immediately began colluding to overthrow the Articles of Confederation and have a more centralized form of government. They got their way in uh, 1788 when the Constitution was ratified. So, you know, there really is, again, that's the whole point of the book is that there's really no winning with, the, with these people. It's like, you know, the, parasites are going to be parasites.
1: Mm -hmm. Very true. So here I have a question. This is something that like, even though you say that they, which, um, you know, it it is failing at this point, even though the United States, I, I argue to say it's probably lasted a lot longer than other countries who had tried it back then. But, you know, they obviously were learning each and every single time, right? Just like we all get better at stuff. But in the media and stuff like that, they always talk about us being a democracy, but they don't talk about us being a republic democracy. So, why do you think that is?
2: Um, you know what? I think democracy is sort of like the enemy. If you want to, if you, the truth is that democracy is sort of like the enemy. It's it's the the mob rule that sort of corrupts yeah. these attempts to limit government, yeah. and over time, it sort of slowly creeps into the political economy. And once people figure out they can vote on your paycheck, then it's sort of all downhill from there. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they want to stress the democracy part, but they don't want to stress the republic part, you know. So it's, it's just, you know, it's, again, well, it's, I, a, it's a flawed task.
1: It just yes. irritates me because every time I hear him talk about it on the media or whatever. I just am like, that's not true, true. You're lying to people. Well, <laughs> Even though time. we're like so far, like we still have some republic left and it's also corrupt, anyways. It's just like whatever. But still, it's like, it's like that one thing that you like, you notice when they just talk about, like, oh, like the new normal or like all this bullshit. No. I, normal is normal. Don't give me no new shit. Just like new Coke failed and they had to go back to Coke classic. Let me go back to normal classic. You know what I
2: mean?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I
2: think he froze.
1: Ah, Keel froze again.
3: Keel's trying to to say something, but he's struggling with his connection. So, um, uh,
0: often there he is. He's back
3: yeah oh yeah sorry keel you you go ahead with
0: your no i was saying Awkward. democracy is just an easy and go. he's
1: out terrence go ahead oh, oh here he no, he's back he's back come on keel <laughs> oh, <he's back. laughs> and you and you think about it he's a, he works in it but he
3: can't get it
0: <laughs> oh come on
3: not kill not kill Go. This, this time. I'm saying
0: the reason they they say the word democracy more than they use the word republic is because democracy people can understand republic is uh, another layer. To wrap your head around. Okay. Right, right, but that's I not mean, you know that I. I love
2: I'm not sure that's an accident though. You know, I, I I sort of think that they've been sort of trained to focus on that part of it. You know, we don't even. Yeah. Wow. I mean I mean a lot of the a yeah. lot of the, the original republican elements of the American government are gone right it's it used to be that the Senate was the, the real rep, the republican elements of government were all focused within the Senate the Senate was meant to be representative of the states that's why they were appointed by state legislatures that's gone we vote on them now and I argue in in the book mm-hmm. The American Experiment that sort of that sort of brought us closer to being that sort of mob rule greek assembly that the founders wanted to avoid
1: You know, I never knew that. So the Senate used to be brought in by the legislature and then now we vote for them.
2: Yeah. Up until up until uh, the 17th Amendment was passed uh, under Woodrow Wilson, the state legislatures appointed two senators from each state. And that sort of went by the wayside. They they, Woodrow Wilson changed all that. So then now that they're democratically elected. That wasn't an accident though right it was the founders did that on purpose they they wanted they didn't want that mob rule they wanted this sort of they wanted the senate to sort of represent state interests and minority like a a minority factions of society the senate is designed to move very slow they have six-year terms you can filibuster Uh, debate is unlimited you compare that with the house where everybody is elected so like a determined majority can move very quickly in the house of representatives uh you know there's what two-year terms in the house uh you know a a strong speaker can just pass bills left and right you know Mm. and that's 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 all done on purpose there's supposed to be this tension but Woodrow Wilson got rid of that and he got rid of it on purpose because he wanted uh, to strengthen the mob Mm.
0: wasn't the the president of the United States originally elected by the the house and the Senate or am I misremembering that you you,
2: you might I, I haven't heard of that one um it might you might I, be thinking of electoral college though
0: no, I know the electoral college, but I'm saying i I thought that that wasn't even a thing originally or maybe that was they had talked about doing that or something mm. I, I'm um, sure I'm wrong. I'm thinking. Of
1: Terrence, else. Terrence, you wanted to say something. We keep interrupting you. Sorry, honey. Go ahead.
0: Mute. Oh. Is Terrence, we mute. can't
1: hear you, love. Terrence, we can't hear anything you're saying.
2: You're on mute. Sorry. <laughs> now he's back <laughs> We're po- all texted po- in yeah.
3: um, They talk about presidents before Washington, don't they? That um, there, was, there were some presidents back then. Uh, that Money may have been what was referring to uh, but what I'm going to say is about democracy I totally agree with you that you know you can get the 51 percent oppressing the 49 percent and I think during COVID that became very important because if the 75 percent or whatever it was had their way they'd have all been forced vaccinating us and you
2: know maybe we put were us dead. in camps. This yeah yeah. yeah, you're absolutely so, right and honestly that's why they've been pushing these this this version of the of you know mob rule on us so that they can do those sorts of things yeah that's what i was
3: going to say that's why they talk about democracy rather than a constitutional republic that protects people's fundamental rights they don't really want to protect fundamental rights because they want to do whatever they want to do to us you know
2: no but in, so, and, and, uh, and you're 100 percent right but I would also um, just throw in there that, you know, republics are no joyride either, right? Like, look, look at the history of republics. Look at the, you know, French history. I mean, what, they're on their, what, fifth <laughs> republic now? They, you know, one, you got, you got yeah. two Napoleons from the French republics and Hitler and then Emmanuel Macron. So, I mean, you know, it hasn't really been a very, <laughs> hasn't been a terrible success for the French either, you know the Italians had the the Italian republics. They were sort of maritime republics, and they they had a, a little bit easier of a time. But if you look at all their economies, they were all free trade economies on sound money. So of course they were going to be successful. Um, you know we don't have that anymore. So so it's you're, our detriment.
3: Um, yeah. So you're uh, basically an anti-government person altogether. So.
2: Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. I'm a... get... How does that work in practice, you know, because you're going to form this nice community, maybe out in the, you know, the woods of Montana, where Ted Kaczynski, who we were talking about in the previous <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <It was. laughs> and uh, but then, the, you know, the U.S. government, their tanks and, and armed forces are going to come in and say, you're not allowed to stay there. We're, we're throwing you off your land
2: no doubt there's no doubt about that I agree with you a hundred percent and this is sort of my disagreement with other anarchists is that is is it's all strategic and uh this is why I'm an agorist and this is what makes agorism unique is that uh we have a, a agorism and anarcho capitalism really aren't that different right it's sort of the same principles it's just that we have a sort of strategy to achieve anarchism in a way that sort of is peaceful and consistent with our principles and that is through counter economics. So, uh, you know, you're not going to vote them out, right? You're not gonna, you're not gonna uh, use violence to to get rid of these people. And the only way you're going to do it, as far as we are concerned, is you're you're you have to make them obsolete, sort of the same way that um, Netflix made Blockbuster obsolete, or you know, your digital camera on your phone made Kodak obsolete. You know what I mean? So. That's how we're going to do it. It's going to be through peaceful, voluntary exchange through economics by creating market alternatives to centralized state's uh, legacy systems, things like using uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as alternatives to Federal Reserve notes, um, using 3D printers to uh, get around uh, gun laws, um, transacting off the books as much as possible. Growing your own food, um, trading with your neighbors, farmers' markets, stuff like that. You know, it's really more about finding freedom for yourself rather than trying to. We, you know, agoras, we don't we don't worry about convincing other people necessarily to be free. We we're much more concerned about um, trying to make ourselves free, and we think that if everybody has that sort of philosophy then the illegitimacy of the state will, you know, be exposed for everybody to see. And those will sort of fall by the wayside.
1: Mm.
3: Very interesting. Yeah. Can I I throw a comment in there? Please. Monica Perez, uh, who's sort of our um, patroness of our podcast, uh, often talks about this. You know, it's a good solution individually, but she says the the downside of that is that, you know, if you're disengaging from society then all those crazy leftist types that you know we we fear will take over the locals and the and the you know the national governments and be imposing their horrible rules on us so how do we how do we how do we resist that
2: my argument would be as opposed to what we have now (laughs) which is just leftists running you know they're they're castrating little boys I mean, it doesn't get any worse than yeah. what, what we have. You know, I, I mean, they've inflated they've, the currency to you know ninety-eight percent of its value has, has been lost. They're castrating children in public schools. I mean, it's just it's it's gotten it's gotten to be out of hand. I mean, a cer- at a certain point, I think it comes to the to the point we have to realize that there is no win in the political system. And the quicker people realize that, I think, the better off we're all going to be. You know, you're not going to. Yeah. they couldn't even get an audit of the Federal Reserve passed let alone they could you're not they couldn't didn't even get close to ending it right so it's not going to happen through legislative means they would never allow such a thing to happen you look at the presidential debates how they're so uh, heavily rigged to keep third party candidates out to sort of suppress you know any sort of ideas that sort of stray from the the establishment duopoly narrative Um you know when gary johnson was running in what was it 2016
0: mm-hmm.
2: the he blew through the threshold that was required to appear at a debate i think it was like nine percent you had to be you had to pull it like nine percent and gary johnson was like at 16 percent. they just raised the threshold to, to, to like you know 18 percent or something like that so you know and they did the same thing to ron paul they they sort of jerry-rigged the system when he was a threat to them so it's not going to happen legislatively yeah. I know the other, the other aspect to that, too, is if, if we could make change politically, it would have happened by now. We have been, man has been playing politics for thousands of years. It, if it could have created a state of liberty, it would have by now. But instead, it's created the inverse. It's created tyranny, oppression, And, uh, you know, it, there's, there's, no, there's nothing from history to suggest that political participation can create freedom and liberty. Yeah.
1: Sam Tripoli just did like a deep dive on the presidential debate between um, Ross Perot, uh, Bill Clinton, and George Bush. And he did like a one, he, it's a two-part series, but he said the first part or whatever. And it's so interesting to go back and look at that, um, those old, old presidential debates. Yeah. I, mean, I really think that really just is a telling as to all the same bullshit that they try to feed people today. And it's yeah. all the same shit.
2: And notice that was the last after Ross Perot, that was it. They could they could not have that anymore. I mean, Ross Perot really he cost George H. W. Bush that election. He took 17% of the vote. Um, Ross mm-hmm. Perot. I remember, yeah. you know, he had these big charts and he was he was sharp. He knew what he was talking about. I remember my parents voted for Ross Perot, and they were like they they were my father was like a Republican who was like, No, I'm voting for Perot, you know. So you know, it's it, after because that he experience, actually probably would
1: have did something good for the country if,
0: of course, if
1: he was in, yeah, but they couldn't, yeah, have and
0: that. no, they can't have that. I remember that debate. I think I remember yeah. having it on the TV when I yeah. back then, and my parents are watching it. And
2: Pro did great, <laughs> he killed it in those debates, yeah. and that was why they can't have that anymore. And you know, that was sort of the thing with Ron Paul. Ron Paul, um, they. Screwed him really badly, but uh, he in the debates, he crushed it and he he might not have won. They didn't let him advance, but I'll tell you what, he won those debates and he created a movement that sort of spawned off of those debates because there was a lot of people who were force fed the neoconservative narr- narrative, like myself, who I was, you know, we were all taught, you know, I was I was a run of the mill Republican and I, you know, I'm watching these debates and I'm thinking to myself. The guy who's, who I'm supposed to—the guy who everybody's telling me is crazy—is the one making the most sense. Let me look into him, and I'll tell you. What, I think that I think that thousands and maybe millions of people had a similar reaction, and that's and that's sort of he sort of created this whole movement that we're all a part of today.
1: Yeah. He, do you he, vote he, at all, Sal? Now or no? No. No, I didn't think no. so. so. Do
0: you do you not vote because you feel it's pointless, or do you not vote out of protest? Uh, principle uh mainly moral principle i don't have the right to impose
2: a master on you so i i, I refuse to nice. vote um but also out of also out of pragmatism it doesn't work and, it's, and not only that but on, on the third layer it sort of just adds legitimacy to the state like it you sort of con- once you like agree to play by their rules, you've sort of consented to their rule over you. So I, I refuse to participate. Mm. I don't want to impose my views on anybody. You know, I, I believe my I you know we all have our beliefs, but I don't, I don't. I don't know that they're right. Maybe you're right. You know how do I know I'm right? Yeah, I could be wrong.
0: Of course, I'm right. Well,
2: yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, Yeah, right. You
0: should run for office. <laughs> uh...
3: What I always say it is any that I have... don't vote because it
2: just encourages them. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. It just encourages the bastards mm-hmm. I think is the is the less polite way of saying it.
1: We have about four <laughs> minutes left, so any last questions or comments for Sal at all before he gives his, his information again?
3: So uh, i I reiterate what his, what his next book's going to be because I'm very interested in what you're going to write about next
2: yeah so the next one which i'm going to start any day now um is uh it's going to be like a deep dive on agorism and counter-economics i'm not sure how exactly i'm going to structure the book yet um i'm thinking maybe like rough idea i'm just kicking these ideas around in my head maybe like the first half i'll do like like a gorist theory and then the second half will be like practical hands-on counter-economics how to Use cryptocurrency to become your own bank, how to 3D print and manufacture firearms, how to grow your own food and how to, you know, trade with your neighbors and uh, how to, you know, ensure your privacy using encryption and stuff like that. So it's going to be a a much longer project. It'll probably take me a year, to be honest, at least maybe two. It took me a year to write the American experiment, and I, I sort of had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do there. So this one will probably take a little bit longer. But so everybody's everybody's up my uh you know what this is this is this is this is the book that everybody's you know bugging me for so um i'm gonna i'll get it done
1: i saw That's that you right. wanted to first of all i, I would that. be careful with like the whole gun part of it because the government's gonna show up may show up at your door um the even though we have our second amendment rights and all that stuff but anyways so um as you're going to go through this, I saw that you were, you were thinking of either like also doing like a class or something on it. So what if you did the class as you're going through and writing the book, and then you're kind of structuring the book as you're doing the class, which will help you write the book even better as you're going through it. It's funny you say that. I had
2: a similar sort of thought process. It was, you know, because, you know, the information is sort of usable for both projects. You can, you know, you're going to write out, you're going to sketch out this whole outline of all this information. You can put it into a book format or in, in terms of a class. I have um, a buddy, John Bush from Live Free Academy. I don't know if y'all are familiar with him. Yeah. Wonderful agorist. He does some great work. And uh, he's had a lot of success with, with um, running classes for people who are interested in, um, you know, f- building a more free lifestyle. And I work. I've I've worked with him on a number of, of projects, and you know, talked to his audience about 3D printing and stuff. So he's had a lot of success with it, which sort of inspires me to go down that road. But I don't know anything about it. I don't even. I wouldn't even know where to start.
1: You should do a joint project with him, and then have him help you structure it because it's you know you have the following and stuff like that. So you. Do, I, I know a lot of people that have run like webinars, six very successful seminars and stuff like that. Right. But I mean, you really just kind of like structured, start your outline, you start it, and then you're building it as you're going along each time, and right. then you just promote it. And it's really more about the marketing and promotion, and just having an idea as to what you want to do. And then the class itself is going to help you structure it as you move on. So you don't have to have the whole thing together. And in the beginning, when you first promote it and stuff like that, and push it out there, eat, even for the first part of it it's going to give you a good idea as to how many people want to pay for it and sign up for it
2: yeah no it's a good idea you're absolutely right yeah no definitely i'll have to yeah. I'll, I'll probably end up using something similar to that later that that approach but um you know it is it's know, a lot I of work, work either way
1: and i know there's a lot of other people that for sure would so yeah. and if your friend ever wants to come on our podcast feel free to introduce him <laughs>
2: Oh yeah. He would love to. I know he, he'd be a great guest for you guys. He's been in, he's been doing this for as, as longer, longer than I have. Probably okay. longer.
1: So Sal, tell us again, cause we're right at 730. Tell us again, exactly where everyone can find you, how they can get your books and stuff like that as well.
2: Yes. Yeah, so saldiagoras.com is the website. You can find my books. This is the first one, Anti-Politics. This band is just an author copy. Your copy won't have that. Or The American Experiment. You can get that. That's, the, uh, that's my second book. And my latest book is Three Books That Changed the World. You can also get that on at Um, I also have 3D Printer Go Burr, where you can buy 3D printers for cryptocurrency. This is a Glock 43. Perfect print right here beauty right here <laughs> look at those specifications i mean it that's looks like very a regular fantastic. i mean it's just beautiful and uh agorathreads.com for libertarian anarchist apparel where you can all and of course you can pay with crypto for all of these things to avoid kyc payment processors
0: awesome so are cool. your are that's your great. previous books available in physical form
2: yes yes the, the only one that's not is my is my new book Three books that changed the world. Is the only one that is not available in physical form.
0: Because I've been, my catchphrase lately has been buy physical media. Yeah, I'm with you. They've been fucking with uh, every every subscription service you get. They've been fucking with it. I'm with you. I'm plus I'm just old fashioned. Yeah, I just like
2: the physical book, you know. But I didn't want to. You know what it was? I didn't want to go through Amazon. I wanted to try to publish a book on my own through my own website and see what happens. This is a small project. I thought it would be a good opportunity to see how it goes. Hmm. Okay.
1: okay. Well Sal, Bye. we want to respect your time. Thank you so much for coming on. We hope that you'll come on again anytime soon. Um and uh yeah and we look forward to thank you thank you again. <laughs>
2: Thanks for having me guys anytime. Just let me know.
1: <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you, you Sal. Bye you Sal. Guys.
0: Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Union of the Unknowns. You can find new episodes every week on all your favorite podcasting networks.